Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBH-FM. I'm Sherry Alexander, and this week we're talking to Annie Lamott, author most recently of Almost Everything, Notes on Hope. Welcome to Writers Forum, Annie. Thank you. Can I call you Annie? Is sure. Is that all right? Well, I think you've written seven novels. This might be your 11th book of nonfiction. You have all kinds of honors. You're in the California Hall of Fame. You did a TED Talk. Um, let's talk about the beginnings. You started off in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I'm still in the Bay Area. I was born in Marin County. My father was a writer and um, both a novelist and a nonfiction writer and wrote magazine pieces for the New York Times. Just everyone. Horizon was still thriving. And so I grew up around a writer and in a, in, in a family of voracious readers and I just got started pretty early. Well, you weren't really thinking of being a writer. You you went to college on a tennis scholarship. Do you still play tennis? I do play tennis. Um, I kind of always knew I was going to be a writer. I was just sort of good at it. I was a good storyteller. I had a gift from a pretty early age. Yeah, you wrote about some things. And didn't you write your first novel for your father yeah. when he was ill? Yeah, my first novel was called Hard Laughter, and it was about my father's brain cancer and, and the really traumatic but sometimes very funny effect on our family. Well, we don't usually talk about people's families, but since you write so much about your family, you, you've written a great deal about your son, Sam, and now your grandson, mm-hmm. son, Sam's son, Jax. Mm-hmm. So I know we'll be talking about them some more. I've read, I think, all of your nonfiction. I'm not as big on fiction as I used to be. And, of course, we can't talk about every single book. We want to get to the new book. But I would like to mention a couple of things. Um, Tell us about the operating instructions, the journal of your son's first year. Well, I wrote it kind of accidentally because um, Sam's father took off as soon as he found out I was pregnant. But his best friend showed up at my house on a motorcycle and announced he was going to be the godfather and he gave me a leather-bound journal and said, write a sentence or two every single day as you go. And and so I did. And I just started sending pages to my agent, and she just loved it. She was she said the pages are smeared with tears, you know, and they were also sometimes very funny. And, and um, people hadn't really written about the darker side or the more um, frustrating, exhausted side of motherhood. They wrote more about the ideal and things that might surely help when you were at the end of your rope. And so I was just kind of blurting out stuff that I was discovering about how crazy you feel a lot of the time. And um, it just took off. Well, I know I speak for many people. I was just talking to one of the executives here out before the program. A lot of us, when we had our kids, really appreciated the fact that you looked at motherhood more objectively than some people. You know, it was not so holy. I think you said something about it's like getting a very uh, noisy roommate, Janice Joplin or somebody that all of a sudden right. moving in into your house. Um, bird by Bird, this was some instructions on writing. This was one of my favorites. I taught writing at one time, and the students really appreciated and. And tell us, I mean, you can sum up that book in the title. Yeah, some, it's some instructions on writing in life, bird by bird. My, we, um, my older brother had a term paper due in fourth grade about birds, and 
it was due the next day, and he hadn't started it. And my dad, who was a writer, as I said, sat down with him and, and said, just take it bird by bird. Read about pelicans and then write a paragraph in your own words and then draw us a picture and then write a study about chickadees. Just read about chickadees and then write about chickadees in your own words and draw a picture. So I thought it was the best writing advice I ever heard. Well, and it's kind of been identified with you. Didn't somebody make a documentary about you and they yeah. called it Bird by Bird? Mm-hmm. So we think of you. Then you wrote another book when your son, at an early age to some people, he had a child, mm-hmm. and you wrote, Some Assembly Required Thoughts on My Son's First Son. Mm-hmm. I think it's a journal of my son's first son, but... Um, yeah, my publisher came to me when Sam was 19, when he and his girlfriend were going to have a baby, and they asked if I would like to do a journal like I had done with operating instructions. And I said, I'm sure if Sam, if I could write it with Sam and have it be, um, have some of his words and journaling in it too. So it's actually my favorite of all the books I've written. Is it really? Yeah. It's the book that I think would... Um, if I were going to a desert island and I wanted to remember what I think spiritually and about letting go of people and releasing people to their own their own path, um, that it's really a book about letting go. Well, all of your writing is very spiritual, and it's kind of unusual. Again, some of my friends and I were talking. Somebody who is sophisticated, who has is open about political feelings, not necessarily conservative political feelings, and yet you're, you're a Christian, mm-hmm. and you're very spiritual, and uh, this is behind everything you, you do and write about. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people, you don't see Jesus mentioned in their books. Oh, well, I know. I'm a people, especially in in the works of people that are, you know, left-wing, very progressive in their politics, which I am. So it's unusual, I guess, to hear um, about another kind of Christianity than the one that is so dominates America and so flagrant and so really fundamentalist and damaging. And and I'm a Christian with um, really a devout um, commitment to my church and to God, as I understand God, but I'm also a political activist, so maybe that's a little unusual. Well, and the um, intellectual types that I'm familiar with, they're all Episcopalians. Huh? They're all Anglicans. They're all uh-huh. British in all but um, nationality. Mm-hmm. And they talk about the high church, and they talk right. about the rituals and the um, the history. And you're, you're not. You're talking about almost evangelical Christianity. Not in my work. I'm not talking about evangelical Christianity. Well, I mean, basic fundamentalist. Well, I'm talking about not very sophisticated Christianity. I always say that I have the understanding of a third grader, which I really do. I don't um, do the deep dive into what all the different doctrine means. I just have a a really um, close relationship with Jesus, and I have a, a little Sunday school, and I pass along what little I understand and the stories I share and and um, um, truth about the world as I understand it from that perspective. And isn't part of it, um, you're very open about this, you had some problems with substance abuse, mm-hmm. you had eating disorder, mm-hmm. and the church helped you at this time? Is that what 
Um, Made you turn to the church? Uh, No, I turned to the church because it was right next to this flea market, (laughs) next to this houseboat community where I lived. And every Saturday or Sunday when I was really hungover, I would go over there and walk it off and, and eat fried food and have a Coke, couple of Coca-Colas, and, but I could hear this music coming from this sort of run-down little tiny ramshackle church across the way, and the music was really a lot of the hymns from the Civil Rights Movement, from the Weavers and Joan Baez and Pete Seeger, and I just went there because I'd run out of good ideas, and I'd sit there, but I'd leave before the sermon because I didn't, I didn't want to be a Christian. I wasn't a Christian. It was 33 years ago, and I finally just decided I was going to give up on resisting at all, and I started going for a year. It didn't help me with my alcoholism, really, or my um, all my, eat- my eating disorders, all my various disorders, but it was the beginning of it all. I got sober about a year later, but it was, you know, when you're an alcoholic or a drug addict, uh, you're on an elevator that's only going in one direction always. It's always going down. And I kind of kept drinking as long as I could. I just loved it. It was really about my community and my profession as a writer and an intellectual. And then I couldn't do it anymore. I was just too sick. And I asked someone who was sober to help me. Well, so many writers are alcoholics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the history of this country is sprinkled with... That's right. Mostly men. No women, too. Dorothy, everyone. Dorothy Parker, I was going to say... All writers are, um, I mean, it was, the myth was that you were supposed to be or that somehow writing was um, helpful to the creative spirit and the release of, uh, from this deep place inside of you of your, of this imaginative and and deep and and, uh, hard fought wisdom and images that were stored inside of you that alcohol facilitated the, the release of that and the crafting of that. And it was just a crock. It was never true then. I was so afraid when I got sober, which was in 86, that I wouldn't be able to write again. And I wrote so much better. I mean, it's like having your windows washed. And it took a while. I mean, I start writing well that weekend. It took actually months and months and months, probably closer to a year before I had confidence again because alcohol gives you confidence and it takes away your inhibitions. But probably eight, nine months later, I started writing what was my first sober book, which was a novel called All New People. The church that you write about is a little Presbyterian church. Mm-hmm. It's near your home? No, it's half an hour away. It was it was near where I used to go. Oh, where yeah. you used mm-hmm. to, to it's be? It's a tiny little church. But you stayed with that mm-hmm. particular church? Yeah. Um, where I guess we can mention this. You're, you've put on on your website and on Twitter that you're engaged Mm -hmm. and you're very handsome and tall. (laughs) A fianced is here with us Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you're talking about a wedding to, to come in the spring. Are, mm-hmm. Will you all be getting married in a church, or have you decided? Or? We're getting married by two different ministers in a redwood grove. Oh, that'll be beautiful. Yeah. And mm-hmm. all your legions of fans are very happy for you. Yes. Everybody's sending you congratulations, yes. and I certainly congratulate you. you. And again, you're writing about it, and um, <clears throat> you're a bit younger than I am, but um, it's inspiring. I was talking to some women, older women, that um, are beyond their child-rearing years mm-hmm. to think of starting afresh is very exciting, and you, you've written so nicely about it. Are, are we going to have a, 
a book devoted simply to that or <laughs> I don't know I, I I always feel that this is the last book I felt that hallelujah anyway which was a book about mercy that came out a year ago April a year and a half ago now um, I really felt like I'd said everything and then people were so devastated after the election that I found myself trying to help people not give up and to have hope no matter what things looked at. But I always hope and think that each book is the last one. It's very hard for me to tour um, It's as I get older, and um, I just really love to be at home. So I can't really... tell you. I mean, I'm five days into the publication of this book, so I don't have a clue what I'm doing next. Well, I, I've seen by your schedule that they posted for you. You are traveling mm -hmm. with this book, and of course, you're here in New Orleans, and we're very happy you're going to be here. Thank you. You're, um, as we tape this, this won't air until after you leave because you've got many places to go. But um, you're speaking at a Baptist church, mm -hmm. which is uh, unusual in that New Orleans is a Catholic town, and mm -hmm. also we're a drinking town. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Have you spent much time in New Orleans? I've been here probably five times over the years. I went to college up in Maryland, and I came down twice with girlfriends, families that were on Easter break and stuff because I couldn't fly home to California. And um, it's hard. I to... love New Orleans. I mean, I don't care what. I love to be in churches. The bookstores tend to do um, events off-site so they can fit more people in, and, and I'm happy in any church. The church I go to is actually very Baptist in its nature, although it's part of the Presbyterian Church. Um, well, this is, of course, the St. Charles Avenue Baptist Church. So St. Charles Avenue is our, it's uptown in mm -hmm. every sense of the word, geographically mm -hmm. and um, in every way we look at uptown uh, mm -hmm. churches as a little more <clears throat> um, Concerned with books than uh -huh. some of the downtown churches, mm -hmm. which are, there's a lot of singing mm -hmm. um, in the Baptist church, and you like the church music. I do. I love to sing, and I love gospel music, and I love the old hymns. Um, some people feel that the music gets to them when maybe the preaching doesn't, mm -hmm. that the music That's gets into you. That's why I went in the beginning that first year before I was sober was, I love the music, and nothing gets deeper, and nothing gets deeper into us than music. I have to agree. <laughs> well, let's talk about the new book, um, Almost Everything, Notes on Hope. Now, you wrote this. This is to your grandson that you, um, your son Sam, his name is Jax, your mm -hmm. grandson. What is he, nine or ten now? He's nine now. And your niece. And Clara. It, 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 it's very... Um, there's echoes of your TED Talk, yeah. which is sort of sums up, I mean, what you've been saying for, what, 30 or 40 years now and mm -hmm. all your mm -hmm. writing, mm -hmm. um, some of the highlights of it. And I was very interested in, at the beginning, you said there's two things you know. One is that you've seen miracles and one that you sometimes felt like jumping off the roof. Uh -huh. tell, tell us about that and, and what, what you learned about that feeling. Well, I... Um noticed from a very early age that I was drawn to windows at, at in skyscrapers and that it just became very um, became a habit that when I was high up I would peer down below and I'd think about jumping I actually don't have clinical depression and I wouldn't say I have suicidal ideation but other people upon hearing that I think about jumping out of high places might say 
I do. But um, I just, like a lot of really sensitive children, found it kind of hard to be here. And schoolyards can be brutal and, and children can be beasts. And um, I um, I just had this curious thing. And then I started working with a therapist about it 20 years ago. And, um, and he helped me, first of all, understand that it was very common that people think a lot about if they're tired or depressed or overwhelmed, they think about turning the wheel of their cars into oncoming trucks just casually without really there being any chance of doing it. And everyone I know has had that experience. And my policy is that I don't write about stuff until I assume they're pretty universal and that a lot of people will understand this strange feeling that comes over us. And so I wrote about the healing from that and the um, acceptance of that, how I live with it. And didn't a minister say to you something like, um, you were saying the feelings that you had, and he said something like, well, who doesn't? Right, yeah, yeah. And that, that made a big that really difference in it, your life. That really broke a trance about it for me. Yeah. My therapist had asked me to always tell whoever I was with, if I was really high up, to say that I was casually thinking about jumping, and he said, oh, who doesn't? And uh, we were in Cairo, and uh, and it was just so liberating for me. Now, but you've also seen miracles. Mm-hmm. You said, do you want to describe some of the miracles? or Well, have you written about them specifically? I, um, me getting sober was a miracle because I didn't want to. I don't like to be around groups of people, which most people who get sober find a group of other sober people to learn from and support one another. And, um, my son got sober years and years ago, and that felt like a miracle. I didn't see that one coming. And uh, I've seen a lot of people. A lot of people in our church have been diagnosed um, with terminal illnesses and given very, very little chance of living more than six months who were here 10 years later. And a lot of that seemed like it um, was related to their faith and their prayerfulness because the doctors didn't see it. And I've seen a lot of people heal and live for a very, very long time after being told they weren't going to. Um, And I've seen people change. I've seen people change from uh, living in a way that was just so destructive and dark um, to having a whole new life. I feel like I got a whole new life in 1986. Or, you know, look at George Wallace repenting at the end or Lee Atwater, Uh Lee Atwater coming out um, and confessing and asking to be forgiven, absolved and forgiven. So that seems like a miracle to me. George Wallace, oh, my God. (laughs) I remember, I'm I'm so old, I remember covering his his campaign. Yeah, I remember it, too. And you also say um, everything's a paradox. Mm -hmm. You use a a metaphor, well, light is a wave and a particle, Mm -hmm. but... But that we have to accept that things aren't just good or bad or mm-hmm. black or white. Mm-hmm. that Or one thing or the other. That they're often a mix and that, um, that if we're positive, we know one thing for sure. It's probably true that the opposite belief or theory is true or holds some kind of really transformational particles of truth. And you say... Um, we're all designed for joy. I love that <laughs> that note on hope. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think most people realize that, or I think having clinical depression is just its own 
its own thing. And some of the people in my family have it and have had to be institutionalized. And some of the people I'm closest to have also. And and I would never try to uh, pump somebody up out of that. That's a really tough animal to to straddle. And um, and it takes whatever time and brilliant help and medication it takes. So, but I have seen people with severe med uh, severe depression. Um, come into ways of life that are so much more joyful or periodically really joyful and that are much, much um, more bearable than they had been. I've seen people really transformed by wisdom and love and science. Well, the Christian church certainly um, puts a big emphasis on joy in our hymns and so on. You say also, we don't want to get too political, but... Don't let them get you to hate them. Mm -hmm. And you have been outspoken on some of the politics that you find abhorrent, but without speaking, in fact, you you don't name names in this latest book. Um, But what are you talking about? Don't let them make you hate them. Well, this was um, a a theory, uh, not a theory, a, a really strong position and talking point of Martin Luther King who heard it first, I think, from Booker T. Washington, that it just destroys the soul of the hater. And that um, I just felt intoxicated with hate about a year ago. I'm not intoxicated, stunned by and imbued with the incredible frustration of what was happening to our country and to the children, to the very old. The church I go to is, is mostly made up of the very old and people really living from um, paycheck to paycheck and social security check to social security check, people who without Obamacare won't be treated and who will go to the emergency ward as their only chance of um, being seen. And I just realized I I was turning into these people who spew so much hatred and hostility and discrimination, prejudice and racism. And so there's a chapter on beginning to work through that from really the only place that I can change much besides that I, I try to do everything. I go to marches and I send a lot of people money to fight the good fight. But what I can change is me. And I started changing my um, the level of hate that I was experiencing every day, literally every few hours, something else. So, and it, we get better. There's also something in the book that says we can change. You know, people say we don't, but we can well, and you do make a point in much of your writing. I think in one book you cite a little girl who came up with how she said it, that it's it's inside us. Inside it's in us. here. It's an inside job, yeah. And so you do make a point of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what about death? You say death isn't, you, you have a little flip thing about death isn't really the enemy. It's snakes or something. And but, cheese, yeah. And cheese. <laughs> but... but but what do you mean, death is not the enemy? I mean, how can we deal with that? There's a long essay on it because people and somebody I'm very dear, who's very dear to me, was and young, young in her twenties, was, was very, very abs- afraid of it and obsessed with it. And I remember being very afraid, really much more that my dad would die or my younger brother would die, but um, to the point where it was kind of crippling. And then after my dad died and after my dearest friend died and after a couple more friends died, I realized I was able to really show up and just be present for him and not try to get them to have some Christian belief in heaven, but just that through care and love and listening, people come 
through death. I mean, they die. They may still die, but it's it's usually, in my case, every time, a very beautiful and profound experience and life-changing for the person who shows up to help care for the person. So I've never seen anyone be terrified. I've seen people have some bad days. But when my dad got sick, which was 1977, hospice had just arrived on the scene. We had a hospice nurse. And it made everything doable, and it does to this day. Once ho- once a family can get hospice care, and Neil does volunteer work for hospice as a person who sits with the dying and, and uh, listens and talks and nods and shows up, and it's changed everything. I mean, Just hospice, one of the yeah. many admirable things about both of you that um, you, you, you've said it in, in such a beautiful way. I won't read the whole quote, but I think he started it I first encountered it in the book Plan B about when somebody dies, but they're still with you. Mm-hmm. They still stay with you. Mm-hmm. And that is a very um, religious way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Well, we're thrilled that you took the time. Thank you very much um, for joining us. And thank you for coming to New Orleans. I know you've made, you're going to make hundreds and hundreds of people very happy um, when you speak to them. The book is Great, just in time for Christmas, almost everything, Notes on Hope. I always like to close with a critic's um, praise for the writers, and because I was especially touched by something you once wrote, that sometimes when you're sitting around with a guilty pleasure and you're reading the National Enquirer, you tell people, oh, I'm, I'm reading the New Yorker. Yeah. So I thought I would pick the New Yorker critic, said, Anne Lamott is a cause for celebration. Her real genius lies in capturing the ineffable, describing not perfect moments, but imperfect ones perfectly. She is nothing short of miraculous. And that was from the New Yorker, just one of many, many praises. We've been listening to uh, Writers Forum, and we want to thank our guest this week, Annie Lamott, author most recently of Almost Everything, Notes on Hope. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH.